Good evening, listeners. It is the 9th of September, 2018, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I am Adrian Gallo. And I am Daniel Watkins. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you are a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, tonight we are lucky to be joined by Holly Horan, a Ph.D. candidate in the Applied Anthropology program. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. So, Holly, you have... Such an interesting piece of work. Tell us a little bit about what you do and what it is or what the Applied Anthropology program is. So my research as a doctoral candidate in the Applied Anthropology program looks at the relationship between perceived maternal stress and the timing of delivery or when babies are born. And the Applied Anthropology program at OSU is there's both a master's and a PhD track. And the idea is that we're not only learning about the theoretical applications of anthropology and understanding culture and variations in humanity, but also that we are using that work to contribute to some greater good, and in particular by being ethical and working with communities in ways that not only involve the research and the methods that we've learned, but also have the voices of the community represented in that work. From your program, the applied aspect, I think, is a really nice touch because it takes the scientist out of the just the theory, you know, ivory tower realm. But like you said, actually applies it and considers the the communities of interest. So um, can you help dissect uh, the or what you call yourself as a medical anthropologist? Uh, Let's dive a little deeper into that. Sure. So I identify as an applied medical anthropologist. If we really want to get fancy, a critical (laughs) applied medical anthropologist. And the critical component means that we look at the institutions or the political economy and the greater forces in society to, as a factor involved in things that are impacting human human health in particular, because I'm a medical anthropologist. And the applied component I've already described a little bit, but means that we it means that we are working with communities directly, not just studying these sort of secondary data sets or going in and saying, I'm going to research this and you will be my population. It's much more community integrated in terms of research methodology and design and execution. And then the medical component, it may or may not be clear to some listeners, but for a long time medical anthropology was looking at the differences in illness and disease and treatment methodologies, or treatment modalities rather. And now medical anthropologists look at the relationship between human health or disease, illness, and a and the other environmental factors and institutional factors that are involved in these health outcomes. So you've spent a significant amount of times in Puerto Rico, and that includes during 2016 when the Zika scare was beginning, when that disease was turning into an outbreak. And wanted to ask how that was received there and what kind of, how that related to your project. 
Sure. So my dissertation research began in August of 2016, which was the, the exact same month that Zika was declared a public health emergency on the island. And during that time, I was in the first phase of my dissertation research, which was interviewing pregnant and recently postpartum Puerto Rican women about their experiences of stress and pregnancy. So clearly, given the timing of my study and the timing of the declaration of the public health emergency, I was including both questions and had a lot of narratives from the participants about Zika as a stressor during pregnancy. Uh, And one of the most interesting things that we have found in the narrative data is that though Zika was a public health crisis, not only in Puerto Rico, but elsewhere in Florida and elsewhere in Latin America, we realized that Zika was more of a compounding stressor than an actual independent stressor in and of itself that was making pregnancy difficult. Uh, Mosquito-borne disease is not uncommon in Puerto Rico, so people and pregnant individuals in particular felt like, you know, we'll do what we can, but this is something that is common to us living in the Caribbean nation, right? Um, And also, there's been a long, long history of reproductive colonization in Puerto Rico that we know most about from the U.S. regime, which began in the 1898. And given the reproductive colonial history, a lot of women felt that sort of, I don't know, I would call it a gut feeling, that maybe there was something they shouldn't be trusting about the public health messaging when it was saying, you know, delay reproduction, use condoms during pregnancy, so on and so forth. And they were, Puerto Rican women were saying, you know, there's a Zika epidemic, quote unquote, in Florida, but nobody has the same public health messaging there to delay reproduction. So participants in that first phase became really, really curious about why public health messaging looked a little different in Puerto Rico. But at the same time, they were also very, very concerned about having an infant with microcephaly. So they had this sort of conflicting disposition about how they felt about Zika, both kind of being very suspicious of it, especially in the ways that it was really inflamed in the media, but then at the same time also wanting to protect their fetus. Can we dive down into the narrative data a little bit more? And I think by narrative data, you mean the interviews that you conducted. Yes. And this is something that when I envision anthropology, this is kind of what I envision. Uh, We'll get into the the, the medical aspect of of your work, but I want to ask a little bit more or to help us understand what uh, what the population that you were interviewing, what they had experienced in the past and how that had influenced their current understanding of, of Zika and how you how the U.S. was trying to you know, a- advocate for, you know, delay your reproduction, use condoms, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So Puerto Rico, beginning in the 1930s, was just starting to establish a, what we, we would constitute as a formal public health structure. Prior to that, um, prior to 1898, Puerto Rico was under the Spanish crown and it had been under the Spanish crown since the late 15th century. And there was no public health system really in place for the majority of Puerto Ricans on the island. So in 1937, that was when the first maternal and infant health clinics were established on the island, and they were primarily set up in low-income communities for women. And this was also during a time when women were starting to transition into being the primary breadwinners of the family and also doing more industrialized labor, which wasn't coming to the island at a higher rate than it ever had before because of some of the tax breaks with U.S. industry. Hmm. So... That was the beginning of the sort of targeted maternal and infant health, not only providing obstetric services, but also providing um, options for birth control, effective, you know, the kinds of birth control that were available in the 1930s, which looks very different than it does today. So it sounds like because because women were becoming the breadwinners, they needed to take a little bit more control of their their reproductive lifestyle kind of ideas. Was that with the intent of, of those programs? 
I think that's the underlying sentiment, yes. Both okay. not, not only from the programs or the maternal and infant health clinics themselves, but also from the, the women's experiences as well. Okay. It's hard to be the primary breadwinner in the family and also having lots of babies. Okay, so that's yeah. 1937. So that's 19, the 1930s, and then in the 1940s and 50s, there was the, a sterilization campaign that went through Puerto Rico. And it was tubal ligation or complete removal, like a hysterectomy. And that has been really contentious in the feminist literature because a lot of feminists want to find these really desperate narratives about how having how being sterilized was ruined their life effectively. And a lot of the women are saying, you know, Maybe I didn't know everything about this process. Maybe it wasn't fully explained to me. Maybe I wasn't aware of other options, but this actually did a lot of good for my life. And I was able to have a lot more economic freedom and personal freedoms because of it. So despite what we see as a sterilization campaign that was effectively coercive in a lot of ways, being targeted towards low-income women, informed consent is questionable, whether or not women really knew what was going to happen to them is also questionable. We see that on the flip side, women's experiences reflect a very different, very different insight. From that. You had a, a very specific term terminology for how these women were feeling after the fact of, you know, l- like you're saying, it was essentially forced on, on, on these women. And after the fact, they realized, you know, it was forced, but in some sense, maybe it was a good thing for, for my life. You have a, a really unique term for that. Yeah, it's called colonization of the mind. And colonization of the mind is something that can be applied in various aspects of anthropology. But the idea is that Colonial forces, so we could go back to the beginning of the U.S. regime and talk about the shifting economies and the ways that wage labor changed in the households and that women not only felt like it was necessary to enter the workforce but were put in a position where they didn't really have another choice because of what was happening to the traditional, the other economies that existed prior to the more capitalist market wage labor that was booming on the island at this time. And so because of this and because of a lack of reproductive health options and because of lack of access to resources, they believed that something like this, like a sterilization campaign that was abundantly available to low-income women who were looking for social upward mobility, was a great thing. Even though really, at its core, there was probably a lack of opportunity to have or a lack of other options for them. So it becomes questionable whether or not this was a good thing or whether or not it was a good thing because they didn't feel like they had another choice. And this isn't the last time that the U.S. kind of played a very strong hand in in the Puerto Rican uh, reproductive ideology. I, I think there's another example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the after the sterilization campaign, and I I will wrap that up by saying that by the 1960s, 35 percent of the reproductive aged women on the island had been sterilized. Can you repeat that for us? In the 19 by the 1960s, 35 percent of the reproductive aged women in Puerto Rico have been sterilized. Wow. And also during that time, right around the late 1950s, 1960s, uh, was the first large-scale clinical trials. And I'm going to use large-scale in air quotes because people can't (laughs) see me. (laughs) Um, For an oral contraceptive called Onovid. And Onovid had approximately 25,000 times more progesterone compounds than is present in modern oral contraceptives. And and when I say large scale, I use it lightly because there was only 133 women in the study. And as a result of this study, it was 100% effective towards 
preventing pregnancy, but there was a number of contraindications or side effects that were unaccounted for, severe nausea, dizziness, um, lightheadedness, as well as three deaths that were never investigated that were associated, potentially associated with the clinical trial. And so after that clinical trial, it's been widely publicized that though, public, or though birth control is effective, there's a long, long kind of dark history about the relationship between reproductive control and the ability to reproduce on the island. So now with those large historical impacts on the back burner, I think it kind of helps to, or at least to me, it would help help me understand why the women uh, in 2016, when you were interviewing them, why they felt such a, a hesitancy towards... And skepticism, maybe. Yeah, mm-hmm. a skepticism towards, you know, you should delay reproduction. Because mm-hmm. they've heard this song and dance how many times already. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's just so contextually different between Puerto Rico and, like I said before, Florida, where they didn't have the same public health messaging that you couldn't help but be skeptical, irrespective of your past, but it definitely causes them to even be be more hypervigilant. So yeah. I'd like to transition a little bit. Um, so because you've helped us understand, uh, or you've helped us provide this historical context into mm-hmm. the result that you found, I want to go into the kind of phases of your methodology of your dissertation work and why these phases are not only really important, but will will also help you to kind of better understand the system as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you describe first uh, your trip in 2014 to Puerto Rico that was, you know, maybe just like your first little touch of the water for, mm-hmm. for, for this research? Sure. So my mom is Puerto Rican, which is why I do research in Puerto Rico. But it's different when you are going to Puerto Rico as a researcher as opposed to seeing your own family. So the primary reason that we did the pilot study, and we being myself and my advisor, Dr. Melissa Cheney, who's an applied medical anthropologist here at OSU. The reason we decided to go and do the study is because we wanted to get connected with maternal and infant health care providers to understand what is going on in this data that we're seeing. And so what we were seeing in the data that's available through the CDC and various other reliable health resources, shall I say, um, was high rates of cesarean birth, particularly um, what we call low-risk cesarean birth, or the which is a, I guess I will describe it. It is a first-time mom who has a baby who's head down, who is effectively not, there's not a good clinical reason for why this mother had a cesarean delivery. And so we call them low-risk C-sections, which is very different from emergency cesareans. We also saw a high rate of preterm birth. So preterm birth is birth before 37 weeks gestational age. And we also saw high rates of low birth weight, which is a baby that's born at below five and a half pounds. And so we were looking in the data, trying to get a better sense of what is going on here, what has been done locally to investigate these, the high cesarean rate and also these poor birth outcomes. We just really couldn't, we couldn't find any information that was really conclusive or really helpful in understanding these, um, these outcomes. So we knew it was imperative to go down there and talk to providers. And so my advisor and I were at a midwifery conference in 2013, a big midwifery conference. I should also say that my advisor is also a home birth midwife. And we saw two Puerto Rican midwives there, and she connected me with them. And I told them about my interests and in going down to Puerto Rico and talking to maternal and infant health care providers and getting a sense of what was going on with these outcomes. And they were like, you know, sure, we want to help you. You want to help Puerto Rico? We want to help you. So it felt a little serendipitous, like 
very serendipitous. <laughs> yeah, actually. There's no guarantee that she would have known Puerto Rican midwives. Uh-huh, right? <laughs> Even and, if she knew hundreds of midwives. Uh-huh, and, I, you know, these midwives didn't know her personally at the time. I think it was her. She has quite the reputation in the home birth okay. commu- um, community, excuse me. And so, and she's published a lot on home birth in the U.S. So a lot of people know her very well, especially if they're in home birth midwifery practice. And one of the things to keep in mind is that Puerto Rico, though it's very much its own nation, is also a part of the U.S. So they're very involved in this kind of work, or they get this literature and are involved in the organizations that are associated with midwives who practice in the States. So we went to Puerto Rico on this, the following summer, in the summer of 2014, and for six weeks we interviewed maternal and infant health care providers. So that was midwives, obstetricians, pediatricians, who else? A few public health professionals, like people who worked for the maternal and child health block grants. And we asked them, you know, we see there's a high rate of cesarean birth. We see a high rate of prematurity. We see a high rate of low birth weight. Are these the biggest issues in Puerto Rico? If not, what are the biggest maternal and infant health issues in Puerto Rico? And what are the barriers and supports to improving these outcomes? So... Over the course of about 20 interviews, 20 very long interviews, anywhere between 45 minutes to an hour and a half, which we felt pretty good that providers were giving us that kind of time. Yeah, doctors and other providers are usually very, very busy. Right. <laughs> Two minutes with a patient. And then yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, you can only give your patient 10 minutes, but you're going to give me 45? Okay. Um, and the, we learned that the cesarean rate and the premature birth rate were the highest priorities on the island. And that there was a number of issues associated with these outcomes, and a lot of them were centered around uh, issues with the Puerto Rican health system, as well as other sort of on-the-ground etiologies around it. So they said, like, bad nutrition, or the potentially the water quality, which there actually is another organization in, called Protect in Puerto Rico that's investigating the relationship between environmental teratogens in the water and outcomes like preterm birth. Mm. So... What we found, though, we think we suspect that the Puerto Rican health system has a lot to do with these outcomes, almost more so than perhaps other aspects of Puerto Rican lifestyle that are also a result of colonization, such as high rates of poverty and the associated diseases that come with poor nutrition and so forth. But using this initial visit, you're able to kind of, one, be sure of yourself that the data that you're seeing is a problem and that those healthcare providers do know it's a problem Mm -hmm. and it was able to kind of hone down your questions even further. Mm -hmm. Uh, So then uh, you and your advisor wrote a grant that was funded in 2016. Is this right? Tell us more about that. Yeah. So after we collected this data, we wrote a grant to the National Science Foundation and we designed a study both from what we had seen in the literature, but also with insight from our community partners. That was designed to study the relationship between maternal stress and timing of delivery. So we were looking at this sort of stress and timing and prematurity aspect of the research that's involved in all of these outcomes. And so we decided to write a grant to the National Science Foundation, because that's a good thing to do. Uh, (laughs) And uh, in addition, we wrote a grant to the Sill Foundation, which has a really good partnership with Oregon State. And I'm sure a lot of students here are familiar with that organization. It's an international organization um, in Japan. And we were successfully obtained funding for this proposal. And let me tell you why this proposal was so expensive. Why did we need so many funds? So the first phase of the study I've already described a little bit, which was the contextualizing stress and pregnancy, which took about three months to complete. And so we interviewed 
25 pregnant and recently postpartum women. Then we transcribed and translated all the data. And then we analyzed the data to add any questions that, that we were going to use in the second phase of our study. So in the second phase of our study, we applied those questions to two stress scales. And the second phase did occur after the first phase. So let me be clear about that. It started in December, right, as the first phase ended. And a lot of the questions were focused around Zika and how to protect your baby. So things that were really, really relevant to the context of Puerto Rico at that time. And the two stress scales that we used were the Cohen Perceived Stress Scale, the Puerto Rican version of the Cohen Perceived Stress Scale, and the Revised Prenatal Distress Questionnaire. In addition to those two surveys, we also asked to collect a hair sample. So actually, can I stop you for a second? Those two surveys, those are very standard surveys that people are very familiar with. But in addition to those typical survey questions, using your first phase, you added in a sprinkle of other questions yep. that were specific to those communities that could help you elucidate some of the questions of interest. Yes, that was it was okay. based off of the interview data that we had from the first phase. Mm-hmm. Perfect. So you're then like tailoring tailoring the, these questions and, and this this work to, to provide the greatest help to these communities. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then what is the advantage of taking hair samples versus other ways of measuring stress? Sure. So we met with moms. I'll back up just for a second and say that we met with moms in the first, second, and third trimester and postpartum. And we collected survey data and hair cortisol data in all of, at all of these visits. And so the reason we chose hair, so there's a number of reasons that hair is useful. So cortisol has traditionally been measured using blood samples, blood splatting, saliva, cheek swabs, and urine depending on what you're looking for. And a lot of all of these options are short-term cortisol measures, so like cortisol with either in the moment or within the last 24 hours. Mm. And the literature on maternal stress and prematurity has is more indicative of the relationship between chronic stress and poor birth outcomes. So what we were trying to look at is we wanted a biomarker measure that was one easy to store in the field because right. you got to refrigerate blood samples, you got to do stuff with urine samples and cheeks, cheek swab samples. They all need special care. So we wanted something that was easy to store in the field. And two, that was going to give us a long-term measure. And cortisol has been shown to be a validated, or excuse me, hair has been shown to be a validated biomarker of cortisol for up to six months prior. So how that works is that when you have a hair sample that you want to collect, you have to find a little one-inch by one-inch cube space in the back of someone's head. And then you take your scissors and you cut right by the scalp. You don't want to get the follicle bulb in there because that can mess everything up. Mm. And then you can measure out from the scalp end of the sample the number of centimeters. And so one centimeter of hair growth approximates about one month of growth. Excuse me. One centimeter of hair is about one month of growth. And so we were able to have hair cortisol samples that reflected the entire duration of pregnancy. So with the first sample in the first trimester, I measured out to four centimeters because we not only wanted that first three months of pregnancy, even though we usually met with them a little bit earlier than that, but I wanted a little bit of the cortisol measures before pregnancy as well. Just get that in there because that's a sort of a background state. Yeah, and it's also a part, it's a component of stress and cortisol in pregnancy that we haven't been able to measure very well before. A lot of the studies only have second or third trimester okay. cortisol data. And the idea of the study was to understand the, re- the relationship between stress over the course of the entire pregnancy and birth outcomes. And so we collected hair from the exact same sample or exact same spot where we had cut the original hair sample throughout the entire pregnancy. And we were able to also collect another postpartum sample in the first six weeks postpartum as well. 
from that same spot, just so we could kind of show that the natural um, direction of cortisol during pregnancy and postpartum to show that it was a reliable sample. Sounds a little bit like tree ring or like ocean <laughs> core data where you're just like tracing things in time as you go along. Yep, absolutely. That's why that was the intent of why we were following the pregnant individuals throughout their pregnancy and keeping the hair sample from the same spot each time. So what are some of the things that would contribute to chronic stress for a pregnant mother in Puerto Rico? Right. Well, being pregnant is stressful, so there's that. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, in Puerto Rico, there's a really high rate of poverty in Puerto Rico. So over 60% of the island qualifies for some federal program or the majority of federal assisted programs. In Puerto Rico, there's it's also very, very difficult to access health services at certain times um, for a number of reasons that we could have a whole separate conversation about. Um, access to quality food is really, really challenging. Uh, health insurance is very, very expensive if you don't have Medicaid. And also, if you are somebody who's on Medicaid or what they call misalud or la reforma, um, they often will have to wait in line for hours. So many of the women that I met with during their clinical experience were either there from 9 to 12, waiting to see their doctor for their 15-minute visit, or they were there from 12 to 4, waiting to see oh. the doctor. So there's a lot of stressful factors. And in addition to poor road quality, poor um, public health schools, so if they had older kids, it was really, really stressful because half the time those children weren't in school. And, uh, you know, there's a number of, of reasons from a societal level that you can see that would contribute to a stressful life in addition to being in Puerto Rico during the time that I was during the study in 2016 and 2017 when there was the ongoing political and economic crisis when the island defaulted on their $72 million debt to pay their debts, which also had a significant impact on wage labor as well. So during your study, you had the Zika outbreak, you had the default on debts, and the associated closing of schools and loss of income. And then you had uh, hurricanes hit. So do you <laughs> yeah, find that these sort of insanely intense point measurements of stress um, mattered more or less than the long-term stressors, like the just being in poverty or mm -hmm. not having access to health care? How did those relate? That's a really good question. So... The way that we've been able to best understand the relationship between chronic stress and sort of these, I don't know if you would call them acute stressors, but the event-specific stressors has been through the, um, the structured survey data that we collected, as well as we did a postpartum exit interview with the moms in the postpartum period. And that was very similar in format to the first phase of the interviews where it was semi-structured. Semi so I was just sitting with the moms asking them questions, typically in their house or in some public place where it was air-conditioned because it was really hard to find electricity and air-conditioning, especially after the hurricane. And I'll talk more about that in a moment, I'm sure. <laughs> um, and the things that they were most critical of, which I think is also reflective of its ability to understand our ability to understand stress was that, you know, you, I can fill out a stress or I can fill out one of these surveys in the moment, right? Like, oh, I'm stressed because I don't feel like my family's supporting me very much. or I'm stressed because things haven't gone my way lately. Um, but they say it's really limiting because they don't get to tell me why. And then when they actually got to their postpartum exit interview and they were reflecting on their surveys, they're like, well, there's a number of things that could have been stressing me at that moment. And so a lot of them will talk about like the regular stressors in their life, which are already things that I've described. Um, but in terms of events specific, none of them 
I mean, with the exception of Hurricane Maria, which we will talk about, um, none of them really talked about the relationship between the actual ongoing political economic crisis and how it impacted their daily lives beyond just like, we don't know what's going on here. We don't know what's going to happen next. And so I think it was this sort of underlying feeling of a a compounding vulnerability that uncertainty about, yeah, just uncertainty about it all. I mean, at that during this time period may have been unique from maybe a time period earlier or later. But, you know, I've always said to everybody, Puerto Rico has been having an ongoing political and economic crisis forever. It's just now we're paying attention to it because they're not paying up their debts, which, you know, are also a product of being a colonized nation and living in a capitalist society. So I digress. <laughs> uh, September 19th, you were <laughs> three-fourths of the way through your phase two data collection and... Hurricane Maria hit. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that experience. <laughs> so I met with my last participant in the pre-Maria sample that day. I drove from San Juan to somewhere in the mountains. And my car was like also breaking down at the time, so that was really fun. You know, there's like this impending hurricane and my car's breaking down. <laughs> and so I meet with this mom and, you know, it, her... I asked her, I said, you know, this hurricane is coming. What, what are you going to do? And she's like, well, the house I live in is made of wood, so I'm just going to go to a school and... I don't know what will happen after that, you know, and that, that conversation, that mom, she's, she was a really awesome participant in my study, but I also just always remember that just kind of like watching her walk away with these two kids, knowing very well that she's aware that she's probably going to lose everything. So after I met with that mom, I kind of rushed to, to where I was going to stay safe. And I threw out the hurricane. It was basically like being trapped in a tornado for 12 hours. That's the only thing I can imagine. And where mm-hmm. I was at, where I was at, um, you could see, like, you could poke your head and look through these little vents, and you could see the wind blowing and just things flying by. And the house I was staying in had these, like, 50-year-old mango trees, and the deck was attached to it. So when the winds were blowing these, like, giant mango trees, like little weeds, the deck was also ripping off the house. So that was... Oh. That was, you know, intense. Um, but in the aftermath, the most fascinating thing that I witnessed was the, the communities coming together to clean up their own. Uh, it, like even after the storm, after the eye of the storm had passed and the storm was very well from being over, like three or four hours over, there were people out in the streets cleaning up the trees, doing various things, picking up power lines, moving stuff so people could drive because a lot of people had family that they had to check on that they couldn't communicate with because cell service wasn't available basically once the hurricane hit the island. So that was something that was really impressive to me, and I realized that during that time, it's probably what Puerto Ricans are used to because even days and days after when none of us had cell service or could tell our families that we were okay or anything like that, that everybody just kept going on with their lives and cleaning up. And there was a little truck that drove around with like a, whatever they called a megaphone. And it was like, we just want everybody to stay safe. And it was like announcing the curfew and stuff. But, and I saw a helicopter go over once, but that was the only time I saw any sort of official individual Right, it was just the community yeah. trying to take care of itself. Yeah, and so the community really took initiative, and I think that's what Puerto Ricans are very used to. And I don't think we were surprised to hear that, given how the admin- our administration responded. So you were evacuated a week later, and mm-hmm. you returned, uh, I believe, in February? Is that right? Yes. Early 2017? Mm-hmm. 2018. 2018, sorry. Yes. Um, and in, in that stage, you were completing the postnatal uh, interviews. Mm-hmm. Okay, tell us more about how that all kind of finished up and 
you know, how you're able to go back. Because <laughs> <laughs> research funding doesn't yeah. usually have it in case a hurricane hits. In case a hurricane hits, <laughs> we'll put it right here for you. <laughs> Yeah, so when I got back, everything was a whirlwind. I was evacuated a week later. When I arrived, I was just kind of still in this funk of like, what am I doing in Oregon all of a sudden? And I had been living without electricity or running water or anything like that. And then the heat for a week, which I'm not complaining, but it definitely puts you in a different mindset when you're all of a sudden on an air-conditioned plane going to Corvallis or Portland, excuse me. So when I got back, I was talking with my advisor, and she said that she had received an email from NSF because they were asking about me. They knew I was there. And that they had said, you know, once she located me, that we would make a plan and they would support me to return to the island to finish data collection because the reason it was so critical for me to go back, which there was definitely moments where I was like, I just, I think I just can't go back. I just need to walk away from this. <laughs> but, um, was that all of the data related to the timing of delivery was collected in the postpartum visit. So basically I wouldn't have been able to collect that data right. if you I had a didn't data point. go. Yeah. And the whole study was based on maternal stress and yeah. timing of delivery. So that was definitely an incentive to return in addition to, you know, seeing the moms that I had been working with and had developed relationships with. And I'm sure you were worried about them as well. Yeah, and, and community partners and everything, just people that I didn't get to see before I left because none of us could leave our homes or go very far. So I, NSF was really, really supportive in holding my funds and then also offering additional funds for me to return to Puerto Rico. And so that was that was also a key factor in me returning. And so my daughter and I went to Puerto Rico in February and traveled around the island for about four weeks and just interviewed and talked to as many moms as who were interested in staying in my study after at that point, which was all but one, uh, which is pretty impressive out of the 50 wow. interviews yeah. we had left, you know? So, um, and that was, it was really eye opening because it was how many months had passed at that point, four or five. And so I got to see some regrowth on the Island, which was wonderful. But at the same time you could still like the, the presence of Maria was still everywhere. You know, you would turn a corner on a mountain road and there'd just be some little, like some guy in his little white truck just taking out his chainsaw and like cutting a tree up and throwing it to the side. And you could see so far when you were driving in the mountains, which is something you used to never be able to see, you know. So it was, there was a lot to take in. And also when you would visit the moms, they would be like, oh, don't mind the mess. That was kind of the big joke. Um, <laughs> at everybody's house. <laughs> like I would, make, I would turn on my air, but I don't have any. But, you know, so... A lot. I spent a lot of time in houses that had no power and no water, and we had a really good conversation not only about what the hurricane had done to impact their own life, but also the stories of resilience and the, the support of family networks around that were really critical, especially for moms with all these tiny babies during, during that period. And the moms who I had in my study who did deliver their babies in the storm shared these incredible oh stories about... You know, they, they almost say, like, I was happy that I was in labor because then I wasn't paying attention to what was going on, <laughs> on the road or, like, these stories about their communities coming together to, like, m clear the roads in the midst of the storm so they could get to the hospital. Um, and a lot of them really relied deeply on prayer to support them through that process. So their, their birth stories are actually very beautiful, despite the fact that a Category 4 hurricane was sure. ravaging the island at the same time. <laughs> So you you mentioned the support of their families. Was this a change in attitude for any of these mothers? So, in the let me track back and say in the first phase of my study, a lot of the stressors related to 
um, pregnancy, excuse me, related to a lot of the pregnancy-related stressors were associated with family, (laughs) saying that, you know, we love our families, but they're too involved in our lives, and their decisions become our decisions, and their worry for Zika becomes our worry for Zika, and it's just too much. There's no boundaries. There's no boundaries. And everybody was talking about how stressful that was, especially during pregnancy, because all of a sudden when you're pregnant, people think that, like, the unwarranted advice they just loaded on. (laughs) So... Interestingly enough, this thing that was identified as a stressor in the first phase of my study, when we get all the way to the post-Maria sample and, and the second phase of my study, the moms, the conversation really shifted to talk about the essential need for family networks to support them during this time, not only in Puerto Rico after the hurricane, but also in a, the early postpartum period, because all of my participants had their babies between September and December. Wow, yeah. So it was, it was really, really fascinating to see how, you know, your, your family may drive you crazy and be a really big stressor when you're not under, when you're not in a post-disaster context, but in a post-disaster context, your family is actually everything that you needed to stay stable in that time. So it's, you know, perspective mm. is everything. Yeah. Life lesson right there. <laughs> right. Um, th- that's, that's incredible, first of all. Mm. <laughs> um so now that you've been able to collect all of that data, you have a planned kind of phase four where you plan on returning. But before we get to that, uh, let's touch on a little bit of what you're finding with this current data and how you're you're kind of pushing the boundaries of how people think of, of, of stress during, um, during pregnancy. Sure. So I talked a little bit about the phase one data already, but the phase two data has some interesting findings. And I will preface this by saying that our sample size was 86, so we need to just keep this in mind. But it's something that is preliminary, and we've actually seen this result in one other study with actually a much smaller sample size. So the cortisol data, cortisol in pregnancy goes, it starts really low in the first trimester. It increases slightly in the second trimester, increases a lot significantly in the third trimester, typically around when you're about a couple weeks out from having your baby and then decreases a little bit from that third trimester level, but not down to like second or first trimester level. So that's what cortisol normally does in pregnancy. And in our study, each mom that had a maternal morbidity, such as preeclampsia or gestational hypertension, or who had a preterm birth, sometimes they had both, had unusually low levels of cortisol. So like their cortisol was like way outside of the range of normal for what would be even a first trimester mom. And it didn't respond to the same fluctuations that you see that are normal for pregnancy to support the growth of human life and delivery. So we are starting to think about that in terms of one of the leading theories on maternal stress and pregnancy, which is this idea called allostasis or allostatic load. So our body has a natural system that responds to a stressor when it's present and it releases a certain type, certain set of hormones that respond and put your body in the sort of fight or flight mode. And then when the stressor is gone, the body goes back to this sort of non-stress state. And the idea with chronic stress is that you're constantly activating that system. And so over time, as that system becomes constantly activated, it starts to become dysfunctional or it doesn't function normally anymore in a process of what is called weathering, or that's the words that are used in the maternal stress and um, prematurity literature. So as a result of this weathering, one of the outcomes could be a dysfunctional stress response, being that your body is not producing the hormones such as cortisol to respond to a stressor in the normal way. And that a lot of this dysfunction with the body's natural stress response results in health, poor health outcomes, such as preterm birth. 
and other morbidities that may lead to preterm birth, such as preeclampsia or gestational hypertension. So we are starting to think about this theory a little bit more seriously as we see this, these results in our study. And we looked in the literature and realized that, oh my gosh, somebody else did too. Thank goodness, because we thought we were losing our minds for a minute there. <laughs> and now we're starting to wonder if maybe the search for high cortisol in pregnancy isn't actually the only thing that we should be looking for in terms of in indicating a chronic stress and its relationship to birth outcomes like prematurity. So that is an interesting finding that I definitely would appreciate the opportunity to follow up more on in my real life career after I graduate. <laughs> and um, I'll just leave it at that actually. Sure. Yeah. Well, since you brought it up, uh -huh. it's a, it's a common question that we ask all of our uh, guests here on the show, but um, seeing where your research has taken you mm -hmm. literally and in the academic realm as you're thinking about these theories of how um, stress impacts uh, pregnancy, what do you plan on doing uh, after you're done with with Oregon State? Mm -hmm. Well, being employed is the first goal. So <laughs> that's that's, goal. that's a really good goal is to be employed. Ideally, I would, I mean, ideally, I would either have a postdoc to continue writing up and continue doing this work and have a larger sample size of individuals in my study to have a multi-sided study with other, because Puerto Rico is relatively homogeneous in terms of its population. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of admixture from the past, but as a population, these are people who are all Puerto Rican for the most part. So it would be nice to have a little bit more of a diverse sample and to have a larger sample size and, and to, to carry out this study again. That would be ideal. So the way that I could do that is either through a postdoc or um, a tenure track position as a professor in medical anthropology, ideally. Well, I'm really excited to hear about your next NSF-funded research project at whatever university is lucky enough to grab you. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have one more tradition, and that's we want to hear a favorite song of yours. Oh my gosh. Well, the favorite song of mine is called The Body Electric. And do I, what else do I have to do? Um, who is it by? Oh my gosh, what is her name? I've already forgotten. Uh, well, the band is Hooray for the Riff Raff. <laughs> yes, Hooray for the Riff Raff. I know her name, but I don't know the band's name. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, so I, I looked on their, on their YouTube channel mm -hmm. and uh, they describe how they're also um, part of, a, of an organization called uh, Hashtag the Body Electric Fund, which will raise money for organizations combating violent crime and the degradation of marginalized communities such as the Trayvon Martin Foundation and the Third Wave Fund. Mm -hmm. um, you can find that link on their YouTube channel. Um, I am going to play it off of the iTunes page, but Holly, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. And here it is, listeners. The Body Electric by Hooray for the Riff Raff. Said you're gonna shoot me down, put my body in the river. Shoot me down, put my body in the river while the whole world sings. Sing it like a song, the whole world sings like there's nothing going wrong.